Chapters seventy-nine and eighty of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu: A Narrative of Adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter seventy-nine: Talu Chapel, holding court in Polynesia. In Partuwai is to be seen one of the best constructed and handsomest chapels in the South Seas. Like the buildings of the palace, it stands upon an artificial pier presenting a semicircular sweep to the bay. The chapel is built of hewn blocks of coral, a substance which, although extremely friable, is said to harden by exposure to the atmosphere. To a stranger, these blocks look extremely curious. Their surface is covered with strange fossil-like impressions, the seal of which must have been set before the flood. Very nearly white when hewn from the reef, the coral darkens with age, so that several churches in Polynesia now look almost as sooty and venerable as famed St. Paul's. In shape, the chapel is an octagon, with galleries all round. It will seat, perhaps, four hundred people. Everything within is stained a tawny red, and there being but few windows, or rather embrasures, the dusky benches and galleries, and the tall spectre of the pulpit, look anything but cheerful. On Sundays we always went to worship there, going in the family suite of Popo, we, of course, maintained a most decorous exterior, and hence, by all the elderly people of the village, were doubtless regarded as pattern young men. Popo's seat was in a snug corner, and it being particularly snug, in the immediate vicinity of one of the palm pillars supporting the gallery, I invariably leaned against it, Popo and his lady on one side, the doctor and the dandy on the other, and the children and the poor relations seated behind. As for Lou, instead of sitting, as she ought to have done, by her good father and mother, she must needs run up into the gallery and sit with a parcel of giddy creatures of her own age, who, all through the sermon, did nothing but look down on the congregation, pointing out and giggling at the queer-looking old ladies in dowdy bonnets and scant tunics but Lou herself was never guilty of these improprieties. Occasionally during the week they have afternoon service in the chapel, when the natives themselves have something to say, although their auditors are but few. An introductory prayer being offered by the missionary, and a hymn sung, communicants rise in their places, and exhort in pure Tahitian, and with wonderful tone and gesture. And among them all, Deacon Popo, though he talked most, was the one whom you would have liked best to hear. Much would I have given to have understood some of his impassioned bursts, when he tossed his arms overhead, stamped, scowled, and glared, till he looked like the very angel of vengeance. Deluded man, sighed the doctor on one of these occasions. I fear he takes the fanatical view of the subject. One thing was certain. When Popo spoke, all listened a great deal more than could be said for the rest, for under the discipline of two or three I could mention, some of the audience napped, others fidgeted, a few yawned, and one irritable old gentleman in a nightcap of coconut leaves used to clutch his long staff in a state of excessive nervousness and stride out of the church, making all the noise he could to emphasize his disgust. Right adjoining the chapel is an immense rickety building with windows and shutters, and a half-decayed board flooring laid upon trunks of palm-trees. They called it a schoolhouse, but as such we never saw it occupied. It was often used as a courtroom, however, 
and here we attended several trials, among others that of a decayed naval officer and a young girl of fourteen. The latter, charged with having been very naughty on a particular occasion, set forth in the pleadings, and the former with having aided and abetted her in her naughtiness, and with other misdemeanors. The foreigner was a tall, military-looking fellow, with a dark cheek and black whiskers. According to his own account, he had lost a colonial armed brig on the coast of New Zealand, and since then had been leading the life of a man about town among the islands of the Pacific. The doctor wanted to know why he did not go home and report the loss of his brig, but Captain Crash, as they called him, had some incomprehensible reasons for not doing so, about which he could talk by the hour, and no one be any the wiser. Probably he was a discreet man, and thought it best to waive an interview with the lords of the admiralty. For some time past, this extremely suspicious character had been carrying on an illicit trade in French wines and brandies, smuggled over from the men of war lately touching at Tahiti. In a grove near the anchorage, he had a rustic shanty and arbor, where, in quiet times, when no ships were in Talu, a stray native once in a while got boozy and staggered home, catching at the coconut trees as he went. The captain himself lounged under a tree during the warm afternoons, pipe in mouth, thinking perhaps over old times, and occasionally feeling his shoulders for his lost epaulets. But, sail ho, a ship is descried coming into the bay. Soon she drops her anchor in its waters, and the next day Captain Crash entertains the sailors in his grove and rare times they have of it, drinking and quarreling together as sociably as you please. Upon one of these occasions, the crew of the Leviathan made so prodigious a tumult that the natives, indignant at the insult offered their laws, plucked up a heart and made a dash at the rioters one hundred strong. The sailors fought like tigers, but were at last overcome and carried before a native tribunal which, after a mighty clamor, dismissed everybody but Captain Crash, who was asserted to be the author of the disorders. Upon this charge, then, he had been placed in confinement against the coming on of the assizes, the judge being expected to lounge along in the course of the afternoon. While waiting his honor's arrival, numerous additional offenses were preferred against the culprit, mostly by the old women, among others was the bit of a slip in which he stood implicated along with the young lady. Thus in Polynesia as elsewhere, charge a man with one misdemeanor, and all his peccadilloes are raked up and assorted before him. Going to the schoolhouse for the purpose of witnessing the trial, the din of it assailed our ears a long way off, and upon entering the building we were almost stunned. About five hundred natives were present, each apparently having something to say, and determined to say it. His honor, a handsome, benevolent-looking old man, sat cross-legged on a little platform, seemingly resigned with all Christian submission to the uproar. He was an hereditary chief in this quarter of the island, and judge for life in the district of Partuwai. There were several cases coming on, but the captain and girl were first tried together. They were mixing freely with the crowd, and as it afterward turned out that every one, no matter who, had a right to address the court, for aught we knew they might have been arguing their own case. At what precise moment the trial began, it would be hard to say. There was no swearing of witnesses, and no regular jury. 
Footnote. This anomaly exists, notwithstanding that, in other respects, the missionaries have endeavored to organize the native courts upon the English model. End footnote. Now and then, somebody leaped up and shouted out something which might have been evidence. The rest, meanwhile, keeping up an incessant jabbering. Presently, the old judge himself began to get excited, and, springing to his feet, ran in among the crowd, wagging his tongue as hard as anybody. The tumult lasted about twenty minutes, and toward the end of it, Captain Crash might have been seen, tranquilly regarding, from his honor's platform, the judicial uproar, in which his fate was about being decided. The result of all was this, that both he and the girl were found guilty. The latter was adjudged to make six mats for the queen, and the former, in consideration of his manifold offenses, being deemed incorrigible, was sentenced to eternal banishment from the island. Both these decrees seemed to originate in the general hubbub. His honor, however, appeared to have considerable authority, and was quite plain that the decision received his approval. The above penalties were by no means indiscriminately inflicted. The missionaries have prepared a sort of penal tariff to facilitate judicial proceedings. It costs so many days' labor on the broom road to indulge in the pleasures of the calabash, so many fathoms of stone wall to steal a musket, and so on to the end of the catalogue. The judge being provided with a book, in which all these matters are cunningly arranged, the thing is vastly convenient. For instance, a crime is proved, say, bigamy. Turn to letter B, and there you have it. Bigamy, forty days on the broom road, and twenty mats for the queen. Read the passage aloud, and sentence is pronounced. After taking part in the first trial, the other delinquents present were put upon their own, in which also the convicted culprits seemed to have quite as much to say as the rest. A rather strange proceeding, but strictly in accordance with the glorious English principle that every man should be tried by his peers. They were all found guilty. Chapter 80. Queen Pomery. It is well to learn something about the people before being introduced to them, and so we will here give some account of Pomery and her family. Every reader of Cook's voyages must remember Otoo, who, in that navigator's time, was king of the larger peninsula of Tahiti. Subsequently, assisted by the muskets of the bounty's men, he extended his rule over the entire island. This Otoo, before his death, had his name changed into Pomery, which has ever since been the royal patronymic. He was succeeded by his son, Pomery II, the most famous prince in the annals of Tahiti. Though a sad debauchee and drunkard, and even charged with unnatural crimes, he was a great friend of the missionaries, and one of their very first proselytes. During the religious wars into which he was hurried by his zeal for the new faith, he was defeated and expelled from the island. After a short exile, he returned from Aimeo with an army of eight hundred warriors, and, in the battle of Narai, routed the rebellious pagans with great slaughter, and established himself upon the throne. Thus, by force of arms, was Christianity finally triumphant in Tahiti. Pomeri II, dying in 1821, was succeeded by his infant son under the title of Pomeri III. This young prince survived his father but six years, and the government then descended to his older sister, Aimata, the present queen, 
who is commonly called Pomeree Vahini I, or the first female Pomeree. Her majesty must be now upwards of thirty years of age. She has been twice married. Her first husband was the son of the old king of Tahar, an island about one hundred miles from Tahiti. This proving an unhappy alliance, the pair were soon after divorced. The present husband of the queen is a chief of Imeo. The reputation of Pomery is not what it ought to be. She, and also her mother, were, for a long time, excommunicated members of the church, and the former, I believe, still is. Among other things, her conjugal fidelity is far from being unquestioned. Indeed, it was upon this ground chiefly that she was excluded from the communion of the church. Previous to her misfortunes, she spent the greater portion of her time sailing about from one island to another, attended by a licentious court, and wherever she went, all manner of games and festivities celebrated her arrival. She was always given to display. For several years, the maintenance of a regiment of household troops drew largely upon the royal exchequer. They were trouserless fellows, in a uniform of calico shirts and pasteboard hats, armed with muskets of all shapes and calibers, and commanded by a great noisy chief, strutting it in a coat of fiery red. These heroes escorted their mistress whenever she went abroad. Some time ago, the queen received from her English sister, Victoria, a very showy, though uneasy, headdress, a crown, probably made to order at some tin man's in London. Having no idea of reserving so pretty a bauble for coronation days, which comes so seldom, her majesty sported it whenever she appeared in public, and, to show her familiarity with European customs, politely touched it to all foreigners of distinction, whaling captains and the like, whom she happened to meet in her evening walk on the broom-road. The arrival and departure of royalty were always announced at the palace by the court artilleryman, a fat old gentleman, who, in a prodigious hurry and perspiration, discharged minute falling pieces as fast as he could load and fire the same. The Tahitian princess leads her husband a hard life. Poor fellow! He not only caught a queen, but a tartar when he married her. The style by which he is addressed is rather significant. Pomery Tani, Pomery's man. All things considered, as appropriate a title for a king consort as could be hit upon. If ever there was a hen-pecked husband, that man is the prince. One day, his cara sposa, giving audience to a deputation from the captains of the vessels lying in Papeti, he ventured to make a suggestion which was very displeasing to her. She turned round, and, boxing his ears, told him to go over to his beggarly island of Imeo if he wanted to give himself airs. Cuffed and contemned, poor Tanny flies to the bottle, or rather to the calabash, for solace. Like his wife and mistress, he drinks more than he ought. Six or seven years ago, when an American man-of-war was lying at Papeti, the town was thrown into the greatest commotion by a conjugal assault and battery, made upon the sacred person of Pomery by her intoxicated Tanny. Captain Bob once told me the story, and by way of throwing more spirit into the description, as well as to make up for his oral deficiencies, the old man went through the accompanying action, myself being proxy for the Queen of Tahiti. It seems that on a Sunday morning, being dismissed contemptuously from the royal presence, Tanny was accosted by certain good fellows, 
friends and boon companions, who condoled with him on his misfortunes, railed against the queen, and finally dragged him away to an illicit vendor of spirits, in whose house the party got gloriously mellow. In this state, Pomeri Vahini I was the topic upon which all dilated. A vixen of a queen probably suggested one. It's infamous, said another. And I'd have satisfaction, cried a third. And so I will, Tanny must have hiccoughed, for off he went. And ascertaining that his royal half was out riding, he mounted his horse and galloped after her. Near the outskirts of the town, a cavalcade of women came cantering towards him, in the centre of which was the object of his fury. Smiting his beast right and left, he dashed in among them, completely overturning one of the party, leaving her on the field, and dispersing everybody else except Pomery. Backing her horse dexterously, the incensed queen heaped upon him every scandalous epithet she could think of, until at last the enraged Tanny leaped out of his saddle, caught Pomery by her dress, and dragging her to the earth, struck her repeatedly in the face, holding on meanwhile by the hair of her head. He was proceeding to strangle her on the spot, when the cries of the frightened attendants brought a crowd of natives to the rescue, who bore the nearly insensible queen away. But his frantic rage was not yet sated. He ran to the palace, and before it could be prevented, demolished a valuable supply of crockery, a recent present from abroad. In the act of perpetrating some other atrocity, he was seized from behind, and carried off with rolling eyes and foaming at the mouth. This is a fair example of a Tahitian in a passion. Though the mildest of mortals in general, and hard to be roused, when once fairly up, he is possessed with a thousand devils. The day following, Tanny was privately paddled over to Imeo in a canoe, where, after remaining in banishment for a couple of weeks, he was allowed to return, and once more give in his domestic adhesion. Though Pomeri Vahini I be something of a Jezebel in private life, in her public rule she is said to have been quite lenient and forbearing. This was her true policy. For an hereditary hostility to her family had always lurked in the hearts of many powerful chiefs, the descendants of the old kings of Tayarbu, dethroned by her grandfather Otu. Chief among these, and in fact the leader of his party, was Pufai, a bold, able man, who made no secret of his enmity to the missionaries and the government which they controlled. But while events were occurring, calculated to favor the hopes of the disaffected and turbulent, the arrival of the French gave a most unexpected turn to affairs. During my sojourn in Tahiti, a report was rife, which I knew to originate with what is generally called the missionary party, that Pufai and some of the other chiefs of note had actually agreed, for a stipulated bribe, to acquiesce in the appropriation of their country. But subsequent events have rebutted the calumny. Several of these very men have recently died in battle against the French. Under the sovereignty of the Pomeries, the great chiefs of Tahiti were something like the barons of King John, holding feudal sway over their patrimonial valleys, and, on account of their descent, warmly beloved by the people, they frequently cut off the royal revenues by refusing to pay the customary tribute due from them as vassals. The truth is that with the ascendancy of the missionaries, the regal office in Tahiti lost much of its dignity and influence. In the days of paganism, 
it was supported by all the power of a numerous priesthood, and was solemnly connected with the entire superstitious idolatry of the island. The monarch claimed to be a sort of Byblo of Tararoa, the Saturn of the Polynesian mythology, and cousin German to inferior deities. His person was thrice holy, if he entered an ordinary dwelling, never mind for how short a time, it was demolished when he left, no common mortal being thought worthy to inhabit it afterwards. "'I'm a greater man than King George,' said the incorrigible young Otoo to the first missionaries. "'He rides on a horse, and I on a man.' Such was the case. He travelled post through his dominions on the shoulders of his subjects, and relays of immortal beings were provided in all the valleys." But alas, how times have changed! How transient human greatness! Some years since, Pomeri Vahini I, the granddaughter of the proud Otu, went into the laundry business, publicly soliciting, by her agents, the washing of the linen belonging to the officers of ships touching in her harbors. It is a significant fact, and one worthy of record, that while the influence of the English missionaries at Tahiti has tended to so great a diminution of the regal dignity there, that of the American missionaries at the Sandwich Islands has been purposely exerted to bring about a contrary result. End of chapters 79 and 80 Recording by Tricia G.